So I grew up in church uh, most of my life. Um, if any of you have uh, pros and cons, I'll just say that. It was a good thing uh, in many ways. And um, one of the things that they did, if you grew up in the 80s-ish, I was born in the 70s, so the 80s were my playground. And uh, there were these cartoons that we used to watch. Um, uh, Superbook and The Flying House. I don't Does anyone here know those? Amazing. Um, so basically, these were anime uh, that were made to, to bring the biblical stories to life. They came on in the morning. I used to love to watch them. An exciting childhood uh, that I had. Um, and you could probably still find them somewhere, so check your PureFlix account, uh, because it's probably, it's probably the only place you'll find it. Um, that was supposed to be a joke. Um, now, if there ever were a duo of stories that were made for like an anime to come alive, um, it was these two stories right here. The Feeding of the 5,000, The Fish and the Loaves. I was fascinated by this story as a kid. Uh, number one, I love Long John Silver's. Um, they had these things at Long John Silver's called crunchies. And you could get them if you, I don't know if you remember this, but there's good fat and there's bad fat. These were 100% bad fat. But they tasted really good because bad fat's where the love is. And uh, so number one, I love Long John Silver's. So fish, the idea of fish related with me. Number two, I loved magic tricks. I still do. I had a David Copperfield magic set when I was a kid. I played with this all the time, the cup and the balls and cutting the string. It was pretty awesome. And so this story had a magical quality about it. I liked it. Uh, part two on this story is Jesus walking on water. You have the boat. You have terrified disciples in a storm. And you have Jesus walking out on the water to the disciples. It was full of mystery. It had a very superhero-esque quality about it. Um, and my young eyes and imagination, I love that story. Um, there was something special about Jesus, and even as a child, I knew those things. I could feel that. I could see it, and I wanted to know more about him. But as I grew older and a bit wiser, uh, the magic of some of these stories begins to wear off a little. I was less fascinated by the story themselves, and I was more interested in the greater narrative of what does this mean for me uh, today? They have to be more than just stories about magic tricks or superhuman abilities. John was trying to tell us something about Jesus, and more importantly, Jesus was trying to tell us something about himself. And that's what I hope to explore for just a few moments uh, with you all today. So as the curtain closes, uh, as the curtain rises, sorry, on the first text that we look at here, we're told that Jesus had just traveled around the Sea of Galilee. St. John tells us that a large crowd was following Jesus uh, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick, which is a strange way to say uh, to say that, but John is constantly interested in signs, and he's telling us all the time there's signs, and they're pointing us to something, and, and he, he uses this language throughout. If you read throughout John, you'll find it. Now, he sets this story right prior to Pascha, to Passover, and we know that the, uh, because of that, we know that the unleavened bread of Passover and the Exodus story were really ripe on the minds of Jesus's followers. So it's no coincidence that Jesus is about to perform a miracle with bread, um, even referring to himself as the bread of life in the future text that we read next week. And then we're told that Jesus and his disciples in the crowd, they went up a mountain and they sat down. And you can imagine this image. Uh, it tells us there's lots of grass there, so we can imagine the green hills. Um, lots of people crowding around. Jesus and his disciples sitting and talking. We've get uh, the sounds that you would probably hear in a large crowd uh, were there that day. Families talking, children running around, people interacting. And there's this air of anticipation. What will Jesus do next? They've heard and seen uh, him do interesting things. And they're all wondering, 
what he'll do next. That's why they're all away from home, uh, out in the middle of nowhere to hear this man and to see what he does. It's in this moment and in this place that the reality of what's happening begins to hit them. And we're told that there was 5,000 men uh, in this situation. And for context, the Fox Theater seats about 4,700 people. So if you've been at the Fox, uh, imagine that. And now if you add women and children, probably three times that. Um, So it's a very, very large crowd. And that's a lot of people. So there starts to be a crisis developing. You have this like music festival sized crowd of people uh, with no food, um, all waiting to see what Jesus will do. Um, You can imagine it started stressing people out just a little bit. Jesus sensing the need of the people. uh, We know last week he referred to them as sheep without a shepherd, right? Kind of wandering around. And there's tension with his disciples. He decides to use this as a teaching moment. And the scriptures tell us that he chooses Philip. And he asks Philip, hey, Philip, where can I buy bread for this crowd? And it's actually quite funny when you think about it, because you can imagine Philip turning around and looking at this massive crowd of people and observing the need and recognizing very quickly uh, that he doesn't have the means or the finances to even make a small difference in this situation. In fact, he even responds, even 200 denarii wouldn't even cover just a little bit of food for these people, which is essentially him saying, I could work for seven months and not have enough money to pay for the people that are here. What Philip was saying is what these people need, I don't have. And can you really blame him uh, in this situation? I feel this way all the time. Natural disasters, poverty, addiction, lost jobs, homelessness, adoption, foster care, uh, GoFundMe's coming at me every 10 minutes uh, on my Facebook. So there are so many needs pulling at our heartstrings and our wallets. And too often we're left like Philip, looking at a giant crowd and counting the cost and realizing that we don't have what it takes to make a difference. It's in this moment that Andrew steps up. He has a little bit of a different option. He brings a boy with some lunch with him. He's got five barley loaves and two fish. Um, And he asks Jesus the question, I've got this, but what is this with so many? Again, we can totally relate to where he's at as well. We bring the small things that we do every day to bring the kingdom to life in our our family, and our world, and it seems really insignificant. But the constant narrative of scripture isn't found in the mighty doing wonderful things. It's found in the small and the quiet places, the humble acts of service, the unseen ways that we bring justice into our world. And it's the simple gifts we give to the poor it's about us bringing the, the, the small things we have, however small they are, and doing what we can do, and then letting the Lord show up in those moments. And Jesus, knowing this, doesn't skip a beat. He'll show exactly what he can do uh, with Andrew's little that he brought. So immediately as the crowd sit down, he gives thanks, and he distributes the food to those in need. Loaf after loaf, fish after fish, it's never-ending provision. So much so that when they collect the leftovers, they have 12 baskets of leftover bread. They didn't take the fish because that's kind of gross, but they did get all the bread back in 12 baskets. And there's a lot to say here with the symbolism that goes into that, 12 baskets. We have a lot of 12s in the scripture. We've got 12 disciples. We've got 12 tribes. There's a whole lot of things. And it's interesting stuff. If you're an overachiever, you can look it up. There's lots of cool things there, but we're not gonna go there today. So the people seeing the miracle with their own eyes and with their mouths, they start to mumble among themselves. There's an energy developing in the crowd. They've seen the miracles. They've had their own needs met. And they know that Jesus is something more than just a spiritual leader. And they say, this is indeed the prophet who's come into the world. Now to understand why their imaginations were quickened this way, 
We have to go back to the Hebrew scriptures um, to a text that we just read uh, a moment ago. This happens back in 2 Kings, and we have a prophet named Elisha um, who had an interesting version of this, and I'll read it again because I think it ties so well into this. When we read Jesus doing it, and then you look and you see, man, this has happened before. Um, it's really interesting. So I'll read it again. A man came bringing food from the first fruits of the man of God, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain. And Elisha said, give it to the people and let them eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before 100 people? Sounds familiar, right? You got Philip and Andrew here. So he repeated, give it to the people and let them eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. And he set it before him and they ate and they had some left, right? Really interesting parallels between the two stories. And those who knew these stories, no doubt had them echoing in their ears as they watched as Jesus did these miracles, just like the prophets of old, but he did them in bigger and bolder ways. Elisha, he fed a hundred men with 20 loaves. And what did Jesus do with five, right? Big deal. 15,000 people or so fed. They were seeing the stories of the scripture come, come to life before their eyes. And they looked and they said, is this Elisha? And no, he was something more than that. God was up to something really interesting and they wanted to know more about it. Now, as the people begin to interact and revel in what has just happened, they took it to its logical end. They said, if this man is the prophet, if he is the Messiah, then we're gonna make him king. Um, they saw Jesus' feeding, John says, as a sign. And they saw it as a sign that he was the Messiah. And they wanted to have him a king, much like what we've talked about before, Judah Maccabees, who went out and um, conquered God's enemies and rode into Jerusalem as a, as, a, as a strong king. That's what they wanted, someone that would come in as a king. And you see, the people of God had an idea of what the Messiah should look like coming into the world and what it would look like, and they were wrong. And we do that with Jesus a lot, I think. I think we have an idea of who Jesus is and how we want it to play out, and we try to do the same thing, make him our own king in the way that we want him to be king. But all other stories and expectations that we have about Jesus, they have to submit to the greater narrative of what God is doing for the life of the whole world through the person of Jesus now, they had been following him for their signs, but they missed where he was pointing to. They were pursuing, as one commentator puts it, they were pursuing wrong bread. And I love this quote that she says. She says, do we follow Jesus for signs and wonders, for what he can do for us, for whom he can conquer? Or do we follow Jesus for something more? What type of bread are we pursuing? The bread of life, which is forgiveness, mercy, grace, and compassion, or the bread of the world, which is scarcity, power, manipulation, and coercion. I can't tell you how many times I've talked with friends or family or strangers who find themselves in this place. They came to Jesus for bread, they had their needs met, and then rather than following the Lord where he leads and submitting to the deep wisdom of the church and her fathers and mothers, they try to box God in they try to put, make Jesus fit into whatever agenda they had coming into the faith. And they find out really quickly that he doesn't fit well in boxes. And that's a really rough place. And a lot of them will get frustrated and either walk away or, or just get tired. You see, Jesus refuses to be the king the way that they wanted him to be king. Jesus would ultimately become king through his death, burial, and resurrection, defeating death, hell, and the grave. Not just for Israel, that's a very small way to look at it. Right? But God wanted to do this for the whole earth, for all the cosmos, to redeem everything. Something bigger and something better than what the prophets had ever imagined. 
And Jesus, knowing where this heading would have nothing to do with it. So John tells us that Jesus slips through the crowd, goes up to the mountain, and the curtain closes. End of, end of story. It's later in the evening, in the next part of the text, and the disciples, uh, Jesus has gone away, so they get into a boat, and they're going to head across, across the water. We're told it was dark, and the wind was blowing really hard. Waves were crashing onto and around the boat. And here they are, three to four miles from the shore. Uh, there's no turning back. They're going to have to really push through this one. St. John tells us that it was in this place of chaos and instability and helplessness that they see Jesus walking on the water. And, he's, and uh, the text tells us that they were frightened, uh, is the way he puts it very simply. Now, if the madness of the sea and the storm hadn't frightened them, uh, the man walking on water out to them was definitely the part that got him. Uh, and then he speaks to them in this moment. And he says, it is I, do not be afraid. Some interpret this as Jesus even just saying, I am, don't be afraid. That's a very profound statement because John knew exactly what he was doing here. He was tying strings together, stirring up images of Passover, of prophets, of Moses and the burning bush. It's Jesus and finds his friends in the midst of the storm and he tells them, don't be afraid, I am. And it says with joy that they take him into the boat. And immediately they appear where they were headed, out of the storm and out of the trouble. It's really interesting when you look back in the Old Testament and you can find uh, parallels like we did with the Elisha story. Psalm 107, I love this. It says, he stilled the storm to a whisper and the waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm and he guided them to their desired haven. It's beautiful. The story itself flows much like the one before it where in the first story, we have a hungry crowd in a remote place in need of provision. Here in the second story, we have the disciples crossing the sea without Jesus, scared, in need of help. Can you see what John's doing here? He's really creating Exodus imagery for us. Hungry in the desert, needing food, crossing over water. John's retelling the Exodus story itself in the person of Jesus. It's, really, it's a really powerful thing. Because Jesus is, we can find provision and rest. People, again, come after Jesus for the signs they see. Either it's a miracle they witnessed or maybe a life that was changed. They see the good that comes when you follow Jesus and they come to him with big expectations. They want healing from diseases. They want financial help when the bills start to stack up. It's a miracle for a child or a loved one who's struggling with addiction or the untimely death of a friend or a family member. We come to the Lord with these needs. And sometimes he shows up he gets in the boat with us and we immediately appear on the shore, healing and restored. The boat leaves the storm where it's safe harbor. But often though, what we really need is the reassurance that we're heard, that we're seen, that we're loved, and that Christ is present in our loss, in our pain, or in our anxiety. We need to know that he's in the boat with us and no matter where the journey takes us, he is. That can calm the grandest of fears and the deepest of waves. The one who formed the mountains and the hills, who walks on water, who breathed life into the cosmos, he holds you, the scriptures say, in the crease of his hand. It's a beautiful thing. Do not be afraid because he is. Our text today points back to the Exodus when he provided bread to those who were in the desert in need of food, and they ate and they were hungry again. And forward, we participate in this story every single week when we receive the bread and the wine at communion. We eat and we live forever. It's not just about eating together. It's about life that can only come through Christ. 
He is still feeding us. He's still sustaining us, bringing all the stories of Israel, all the stories of the prophets and all the things into himself. That's why a text today is so important for us because it points us to consider who Jesus is and what his impact will be on our world. He chose to act both with the crowds and and to the disciples and show them who he is, both in miracle and in his presence. And I pray today as his church that we could find rest in him. Amen. Amen.